This is the Macworld Podcast for February 25th, 2015, episode 445. It's brought to you this week by Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. Hi, everybody. I am not Chris Breen, and I'm joined this week by... Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, not Chris. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great not being Chris right now. So let's introduce you and tell people who you are. This is Glenn Fleischman. You probably have heard the voice. You, I'm sure, have read the tweets. And now here he is on the Macworld podcast. And I'm so thrilled that you're here. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, Chris, I think uh, he decided to slow things down and, and go to farming country. I understand he's working at some kind of fruit company. A little so farm downstate. Yeah, I mean, picking fruit or something in, in the, the uh, sylvan fields of Cupertino. So down Chris in is, apple orchards, yeah. Chris has big hair to fill, and I guess I'll try to, I'll try to occupy uh, that role as best I can. I'm trying to start a rumor that he and Craig Federighi are starting a line of shampoos and conditioners. Oh my God, that would I would buy that. I think there'd be some so great labels. So would I. He's already got the account for it. Well, he's got the hair of Breen could be uh, could be recovered on Twitter. Little gold uh, flakes in there, it'd be perfect. It's excellent. So we have a few different things to talk about um, this week. Should we start off with? Uh, should we start off with the uh, the uh, hard drive situation? I know this is this falls into my like security and privacy uh, bailiwick, but have you heard about this about the uh, the Kaspersky Labs report that came out last week about uh, uh, potential uh, government intrusion in our drives? Yeah, I've been following it a little bit. I read something on PC World this morning where the government was like, yeah, you know, encryption, we really do need a backdoor. But we really don't like the term backdoor. That, that sounds so sinister. But yeah, so the government is really not happy that people are kind of, you know, starting to wise up to this and encrypt their, their drives. Is that the issue with the Kaberski report? Uh, yeah, the Kaspersky report is is really specific about a couple different kinds of attacks that were going on that are very clearly uh, government sponsored attacks because of the both the duration they took place, the sophistication, and what's seen as the amount of money that would be required to have basically a team of programmers and the resources, like even things being intercepted in the postal mail and um, manipulated and then sent on their way to uh, destinations. So. Um, it's, you know, the Kaspersky did not say, I think did not actually explicitly say a government player was involved. They uh, talked about this thing called the Equation Group, which is a thinly veiled reference to um, the NSA, uh, because the NSA does all this equation stuff. They like algorithms. And, They're just uh, math nerds. Exactly. Well, as they do. I mean, you know, there's the uh, the wonderful sculpture they have called Cryptos, and no one's yet decrypted. Um, that's on the CIA grounds, uh, and NSA and CIA people have been trying to decrypt it for years and have not yet succeeded. But um, it's a side thing. But so the, the, the main issue, I think, that affects people, well, the one you're talking about ties into this, is that I think there's no better proof in my mind that Apple and Microsoft and Google and other companies are actually engaged in more serious efforts to protect user privacy by um, upping the quotient of, of encryption uh, protection uh, than the fact that governments are so upset right now. You have the head of the FBI last year. You have the leader uh, of uh, David Cameron, the uh, the uh, Prime Minister of uh, of uh, the United Kingdom. You have all these people coming out and talking. And you have even uh, Obama recently. President Obama was talking about kind of this balancing factor. And you have all these 
people in government saying, well, this encryption thing is great, but we really need access in some fashion because without that, the bad guys can do stuff. And when you talk to the people on the privacy side of things, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or, or other groups that advocate for um, like either personal liberty on the one side or just privacy, I mean, kind of, it can be far left or not even far left, but left and right ends of the political spectrum. You'll often have people uh, talk about the fact that uh, that all of this effort to intercept communications allows uh, government agencies to do wholesale interception so they can siphon down millions or hundreds of millions of bits of information at once um, about people who may be totally uninvolved and then sift through it. That's what they'd prefer, where good old-fashioned police work is still often the thing that leads to actual uh, solutions of uh, for you know people being arrested and crime rings being broken up and terrorism being uncovered. It involves a lot more feet on the ground and, and end point uh, assistance. So it may even be futile to be doing all this. I shouldn't say futile, but it, it, it disrupts the privacy of all of us by allowing this. And then there's the classic thing that if you have a backdoor in software, if there's a way in, then the bad guys do it as, as well as good guys. It's not just um, possible to have a good guy backdoor that only government can use. Uh, that's been proven again and again to be impossible. Yeah, that's true. The backdoor could become a Pandora's backdoor very quickly. Yeah. Oh, but the, uh, the hard drive thing in particular, I think that's where Mac users may be um, most specifically concerned, especially if you you know work in a mixed-use environment. The, the report from Kaspersky talked about how uh, – so every piece of hardware we have that does anything autonomous has its own operating system, right? It's got like a little – whatever. It's not, it doesn't have to be that complicated, but a hard drive has an operating system. It's got a CPU and, and the rest. And, uh, you know, many things like our lightning cables, actually lightning cables. I won't be surprised if someone figures out a way to crack a lightning cable because when they first came out, I can't remember who it was, is it Mac fix it or someone dissected the cable and discovered there's an essentially an entire computer in each end of the lightning cable. Right. Um, and so, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that, that there was a way to subvert that if the firmware can be updated or you can take advantage of it. So hard drives have the same problem and hard drives typically have flashable uh, firmware. So it can be upgraded if something goes wrong. Uh, and corporations, usually individuals do not flash their hard drive firmware because they don't need to. But corporations buy the same drives. Their IT departments may want to fix a problem or they keep it up to date or whatever. So ostensibly, this, uh, uh, this group, uh, equation group, managed to create firmware cracks for like every major hard drive brand and like a huge array of hard drives, which so an infected machine could have its hard drive firmware rewritten. And then even if a machine was entirely wiped, uh, the hard drive's firmware after <laughs> the computer was reinstalled with the drive would actually be able to install malware uh, from the storage inside itself that isn't affected by being erased. And that, oh, that is hard access. Kind of creeps you out, doesn't it? Yes, that's very creepy. <laughs> so, uh, so far, now the reports that came out, it's unclear if any Macs were affected. And uh, talking to some security experts, I, I get the impression that solving this, uh, so the, the typical way we do this, so think back uh, several years when Apple first started pushing software updates over the internet. Um, I remember, actually, it's very funny, I was on the first uh, Mac Mania cruise, and one of Apple's security guys was on the cruise. <laughs> we talked a little bit about this at the time, it was like 12, 13 years ago, and Apple was pushing out software updates without uh, verifying that they were the group pushing it out. And someone said, look, and I think did a proof of concept, Anybody who had access could push a software update to a Mac. You got to sign these things. You have to cryptographically uh, put a proof 
in the update that only Apple could have done this. And then the Mac can check and, and everybody's happy. And the same thing could happen with hard drives where the firmware has to go through this signing process so, before it gets installed. But that requires probably changes to both hardware and software, um, both on a host computer and in the hard drive. And so it's not going to happen immediately. Apple's advantage here is as a monolithic uh, you know, PC company, they could, if they decide this is important, and maybe they already have some checks in place for this, they could, uh, uh, they may, in fact, for all we know, and I don't, I don't know, Apple doesn't talk about this or hasn't yet, they may be able to prevent hardware firmware updates from being installed through OS X um, on a drive, which would be an effective way to prevent this from happening. But beyond that, they could make changes to the Mac motherboards um, and, uh, and, take, uh, and, and get rid of the problem. Um, or have or require that hard drive companies upgrade their equipment to only allow that. But um, it creeps, it, it squicks me out. You know, you're thinking, yeah. this is my computer, and someone is it's like, you know, it's like, oh, here, have a new mouse. You're like, oh, I put the plug the mouse in now. The and this is true. This actually happens too. The mouse has infected my computer over USB, and um, there's actually uh, <laughs> there are there are issues about if you plug in uh, a USB. Uh, thumb drive into something, it could actually be infected with malware from a host computer and uh, your phone could be infected. There's all these things where you wouldn't think of it as a vector, but all these communications protocols, if someone figures out how to crack them, then it's a way to pass uh, a, you know, malware over. And we Mac users have been uh, very, I don't want to say complacent, but we've been very non-nervous about this sort of thing. But as Macs continue to uh, you know have the market share they do and interact. Um, I mean, I think Mac is sort of the, it's the biggest profitable um, <laughs> computer company or computer line. Uh, I think we're going to see more people coming back to thinking about using it as a vector for, for attack because of uh, its, its increasing prevalence. Yeah. And you think about, you know, malware and attacks coming in. You, I usually think about like if, if that would happen, it's probably, you know, I downloaded something bad. Like it would come sort of directly through me. Like I downloaded something bad or I got fished and gave away my information. But this is almost like all the little tiny computers that, you know, in, in cables and hard drives that you're connecting all the time. So it's almost like your hard drive is fishing your computer, you know, and oh then it's, like, it's not even something that you did. So, yeah, that's really scary. Be sure, yeah, to, be sure to tell us if this happens. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and this is, you know, th this is the interesting part of how things come out. Like the super, we don't have to get into super fish because that's been beaten. Super fish has been beaten to death. It's stinking up. Uh, the streets. Uh, what do they say about uh, visitors and fish uh, after three days? Stink from, <laughs> start to stink. And uh, but the superfish thing that happened also last week, where it turned out Lenovo was pre-installing software that happened to subvert the security and integrity of the entire uh, system of secure web connections and they on were the internet. Like, That's bad. We didn't know that was bad. No That's not a security threat. Yes, some it is. marketing person. But you look at things like that and you think, gosh, uh, it's just so easy to subvert these chains of trust and we need to, we need to be able to to uh, to deal with that. But I think what happens is every time something like that happens then like another layer gets put in. So Facebook apparently and uh, and some other uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation as well uh, and other companies are coming out 
they didn't know what was going on with Superfish, so they weren't monitoring for it. But once they knew Superfish existed, they're able to look at um, the EFF runs this thing called SSL Observatory, where they're constantly tracking SSL certificates that are used for web uh, web based transactions, uh, secure transactions, and they're making basically a large directory of it for research purposes and and analysis. So they found a t- I think forty four thousand Superfish certificates. So that's people who who participate in the observatory whose machines had this certificate in place on their computer. So they were able to analyze it. Facebook found it. And this outside observation means that the next time something like this happens, these organizations are now queued to look for the signs. So so it won't go hidden the way it was before. Same thing now that the hard drive uh, uh, cow is out of the barn, I think we call it. Like now we know that hard drives can be subverted. Someone's going to release like firmware checking tools. So even if you can't be sure that your firmware was... uh, was perfect was um wasn't modified uh like during the process or just running your computer you might be able to get a firmware checker that could check the integrity at certain points in time so uh, this is all going to be uh this is all going to be changing now that we know about it but there's always holes to exploit yeah okay cool hey so uh apple pay is kind of a cool thing but um google Google pioneered this, and they got a little left behind. And I have friends who are Android users. We all have friends who are Android users. Yeah, and, they're uh, nice people. They're great. I love them. Yeah. And uh, and uh, one of my friends in particular has been giving me a hard time about near field communication NFC for years because it's been, and she uses it effectively for all kinds of things, but. Google was kind of ahead of the curve, and they couldn't seem to get merchant adoption. But there's news this week. Something is about to change. What's going on with Google Wallet? So Recode reported that um, Google had struck a deal with some big wireless carriers to um, pre-install Google Wallet on a bunch of different phones, different Android phones, from Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T. That's going to start later this year. And they also, um, in, as a part of this announcement, they bought some technology from SoftCard, which is a mobile payments app that was already backed by Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T. So this probably helped them get the deal done. Um, and SoftCard, is, its app is still in use for now, but you know it's, it'll probably end up going away. So yeah, I, I was sort of surprised by this news because I didn't realize that Google Wallet wasn't, you know, it's, it's Google. I thought it was just part of Android. The only Android phone I've owned was a uh, Nexus 4. So I bought that right from Google and it had, you know, the clean Android install with no carrier skin BS over it. So yeah, I had Google Wallet on there and I don't know if I ever used it. Did you, It well, part of it was merchant support. Like it was yeah. very confusing to me uh, like that some merchants supported it. Well, I mean, cause merchants were installing NFC because it's part of the future. I mean, like the, there's the there's a couple of different things coming down the pike, and I think it's confusing because there's uh, there's chip and sign. So in Europe, they have I should probably you know this is actually I investigated this a few months ago because I started to get grief from Europeans about this. So I'm like, all right, <laughs> let me figure it out. So in Europe, they have this thing. It's unrelated to NFC, really, right? It's called chip, chip and, and pin. pin. Yeah, yeah. And so you get and I have I just got a new uh, uh, American Express card because I'm earning I'm earning hotel points for a vacation with my family. And um, that's not an advertisement. I'm sorry, but it's true. <laughs> it's that's a freebie for Amex. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Amex. They could so use it. We'll get we'll get them on as a sponsor. I'm sure. Anyway, no, that would be unethical. Promising so, um, small so, company. So I, I promise. Yes, up and comer. So my Amex card, this new one, is the first one I have with the chip. 
chip on it. Here's the deal, though, that's so confusing. And I had this went round and round with, with a bunch of people on Twitter a few months ago because in Europe, everything is chip and pin, and they also have contactless payments using NFC. Chip and pin, you take your card and you stick it into this thing and it regurgitates it back out after it reads the chip. Then you punch in your pin, right? In some cases, you can tap your card and enter the pin instead. But uh, if the card, there's like a requirement, if the, if you have the card present um, and your amount is, uh, the contactless payments part, sorry, if you tap and you do a contactless payment, it can be for amounts, it's under about 20 to $30 in whatever European currencies are in use. And that's sort of like in the US, like we can swipe a, ma a magnetic card and I think if it's under $25 a lot of places, uh, you don't sign, right? Yeah, you don't have to sign it, you know, like fast food places and stuff anymore. Yeah, and they're raising the limit, too. And they do some, like, heuristics on the back end. So sometimes I've done things where it's, like, a $76 grocery charge, and they don't ask me to sign because it shows I've shopped there before or whatever. So the European model makes a lot of sense. It's reduced fraud tremendously, and um, it reduces online fraud if people have chip readers at home, which I don't think are very prevalent yet. So there's like this issue of you can't just duplicate a card and use it like you can in America. You, If you want to use it in person, you have to have the chip and the chips can be, there's ways to get around that, but it's very rare. So it shifts theft to uh, more online. So in America, though, we're not doing chip and pin necessarily. There's a requirement going into effect in October by all the uh, major uh, credit card networks. Um, they're requiring that merchants and stores do at least chip and signature, which almost no one has heard of and we're going to start hearing about, or chip and pin as an option. So a, a credit card company can say you have to do chip and pin and force the merchant to make the transaction be this reader plus typing in a pin. Chip and sign, you still um, read the card, but there's no no place to type in a pin. You just sign off on it like you would as if you'd swiped a card. So that's going to be confusing. There are some benefits from chip and sign um, because the chip has to be present for, for in-store transactions. But chip and pin is kind of the gold standard. And I think the industry pushed so hard against making the change uh, because they thought it would just confuse American consumers too much. So now we'll have some cards you'll have, you'll have to sign, some cards you'll have, you'll have to use a pin. And that's going to be less confusing, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but I'm sorry, so back to but the Google Wallet thing, uh, it's not related. NFC doesn't enable chip and sign or chip and pin at all, but it can be a component of it. And um, so Google's been trying to get merchants to upgrade. And I think merchants have wanted to upgrade because they've, they've had a lot of... Uh, They'd rather have these transactions be easier. And also, I think there's a, a security advantage if you uh, tap. The NFC communication makes it more likely that the card or whatever you're using, like an iPhone or, or Android phone, that it's legitimate, that it hasn't been you know fraudulently duplicated or, or what have you. So I think there's actually a, a decent fraud advantage for it, too. Yeah, and the cost of fraud is, you know, taking so like to a consumer, you know, the you're not paying for any fraud that would happen. So going from, you know, a credit card to a chip and pin credit card to a super secure transaction like Apple Pay, it's 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 really transparent for the consumer. The fraud is being the risk of fraud is being borne by the banks. So these more secure like these more secure payment options are going to be beneficial for the banks and then they, you know, if they are feeling nice, they could cut the rates that they <laughs> charge to the retailers. So that's how it will end up affecting you in like a trickle down kind of way. 
but yeah, it is kind of confusing for, you know, when they mix up payments that you've been using for decades and say, okay, now this car that this credit card that used to just swipe and sign, like now it's going to have a pin kind of like your debit card, but the, you know, it's a little different. So yeah, I'm, the contactless payments have been really good for the retailers who have adopted them. I mean, Tim Cook was talking about how Whole Foods, like they saw a 400% increase in contactless payments. Um, every two out of three dollars that's being spent right now on contactless payments is being uh, gone through Apple Pay. But I mean, just on the ground here, I, if I was going to go out like for lunch today and try to use Apple Pay, there's really not that much around yet. A lot of banks are signing it up, but I mean, I've got oh, right just within a mile of this office, I've got like a Whole Foods and a Subway. And that's kind of it. So I'm hoping that if Google Wallets, you know, the, this rising tide is going to lift all the boats, that Apple Pay will benefit Google Wallet, that Google Wallet will benefit Apple Pay. Because right now, Apple Pay is still, for contactless payments at a store, it's still iPhone 6 and 6 Plus only. Yeah. So there's so many lower cost Android devices, and that could really snowball the adoption by retailers if they see, okay, this is less secure, this is not a big, you know, this is more secure, this is not a big deal for my, you know, I don't have to like retrain employees or, and it's, it's not going to cost me anymore. So yeah, hopefully we'll see if if Google Wallet starts being used more because they just put it on your phone. And I think like it's it's also how you buy things in the Google Play Store, like if I'm going to buy an app for or for my Android or a movie at Google Play, which I don't do very often, um, yeah, that's just, that's picked up by my Google Wallet. So it, it works kind of like Apple Pay, but I just want it working more places so everywhere I go, I can, I can do the contactless on my iPhone. Well, let me ask you, in San Francisco, I'm in the backwater here in Seattle, so yeah. we're, a small, we're a small town, but in San Francisco, <laughs> do you see, are square registers used in a lot of uh, small stores? Yeah. There, do you, so you see it like bodegas and, and convenience stores and, and everything else like Food that? Food trucks, mm -hmm. yeah. Like we have a lot of just little tiny coffee stores where you go in and there's like two stools and, and a guy at a counter. Like there's tons of those just little micro restaurants and booths and stuff. Well, so and, Square's going to update its register product to include NFC. In fact, I wondered if they'd had it built in and we're waiting for the like enabling technology but I'm, I'm, it's not clear yet they may have to release a new model and then apple has hinted in the past we don't know yet i guess do we that um nfc should be available as a receiving technology too mm -hmm. right like there should be a way so square maybe square would be the partner somebody's going to be the first partner to be able to receive NFC. So you go in there, you go into you know a bodega or a food truck, and you tap your phone to pay. And wow, that's great. Especially in the maybe square. I don't know if they'd offer better rates again because they may be paying less, but they average out their rates. But it would still be a little more secure, and it takes less time. So when you're busy at a store, the fact that someone can tap and go, basically, that seems to be a nice improvement too. Yeah, those food trucks get really long lines, so speed it up. <laughs> and less less paper, yeah. less swiping. So yeah, the ones that use the square dongle sometimes it takes a while because they're like, oh, it has to go through. But it's been getting a lot better. But now we're starting to see those big square kind of kiosks where it looks like an iPad and it pivots, mm -hmm. so like he can look at it and then. 
the guy can pivot it towards me and the f- display flips over and I can, you know, put in my tip and, and sign with my finger. So It'd be great for Square too, because yeah. uh, Square's always done, I mean, it's done great iOS support. And um, I, I don't, I've got an account because they rebate you if you buy the dongle, they give you, uh, it's 10 bucks, I think, and then they refund it when you start using it. And, you know, you can use it for garage sales, but I've used it to sell t-shirts and books and other stuff. And it's, it's a terrific bit of integrated technology. So, uh, you know, I think the, the Google Wallet, I want to say its problem has to do with the fragmentation. No, it's not really the fragmentation. It's more like, <laughs> I don't, I think Google, I forget if they're now mandating, we have Android experts on staff could ask this, but uh, if they're mandating NFC in all Google and all Android phones as part of the spec, I forget if they're mandating it, but I think many, uh, all the high-end phones do. Yeah, they pretty much all have it. Yeah, because so there's some number I've seen. It's like hundreds of millions of Android phones have NFC, but not all of them use it because you've got that Google makes Android. The handset makers make the phone, even though there's like, you know, the flagship Google phone, the Nexus models and so forth. And then uh, and then you have a, an integration with a phone company, right? And then you have a, a credit network like Visa or MasterCard. Then you have the merchant bank. Then you have the merchant. It's a lot of pieces. And <laughs> Apple, because of Apple's control of the ecosystem, I think Apple Pay succeeded, not necessarily Android friends, because it was a superior technological innovation, even though I quite like how simple it is. Let's say that. But uh, because they were able to go essentially to the big networks and the big banks and say, look, we got this thing. All we want is this. We want a few basis points. We're going to make it efficient. We're going to bear some of the risk. And you're going to see NFC take off, which you guys want to do because it reduces fraud. And they did it. My credit union, uh, BECU, formerly associated with Boeing, but it's a statewide Washington credit union. It's, I think, number two or number three in the country. We've been bugging them. We're like, when are you getting an Apple Pay? When are you getting an Apple Pay? And then finally they're like, look, we're on it already. And uh, just a <laughs> couple of weeks ago, and everyone I know in Seattle and Twitter is like, yay, we all tapped our cards and scanned them in. So I have now every credit card I have. I've got a couple airline cards, the the hotel Amex one and two uh, credit union cards. All of my cards that I ever would need to carry, and I only carry some of them, are now in Apple Pay. So that's that's kind of nifty. So Google's got a, that to compete against now. Um, they have the bar set high, but they have the depth of time with making it work with their systems. So it seems like it's a it's a deployment issue, right? Like getting more phone makers, and now they've got the cell carriers lined up, and and getting the merchants aligned with it. Yeah, I was surprised that the story said that the cell carriers had been had been blocking it in in the first place. Like that that just seems like an unlikely you know place to get resistance for this. Like they want to make the money. I mean, it's these you know it's what trillion dollars of stuff, and they want a tiny they want their tiny tiny slice. And they tried for years. Well, look at so you have you read up on current C? It's so ridiculous a that bit, I, yeah. it's. I mean, they want you. So the difference between a debit card or a direct debit from your bank account and a credit card is debit doesn't give you any protection really. Like some of the cards give you protection, but there's so many fewer consumer protections with a debit card. And current C, it's current dash capital C, uh, is a merchant-backed thing. That's why, um, who was it? Was it CVS and some of the other big Walmart merchants? Walmart is behind yeah. it, yeah. And they had they accidentally had uh, NFC enabled and then pulled it, as we remember, a few months ago. Yeah, CVS and Rite Aid, yeah. Oh, I used it gosh. on the Apple Pay launch day because it was just, you know, anywhere you see the little oh. contactless payment 
symbol, even if it doesn't officially support Apple Pay, like a lot of times it'll just work. Like I've been in the back of a cab and they have, you know, an NFC reader oh, yeah. on the swiper and I'm just like, oh, here you go. But, I, you know, we haven't heard any like, yeah, you can use Apple Pay in cabs and there wasn't an Apple Pay logo, but it just kind of works most of the time. So Bad news is vending machines that do it. That's yeah. going to be bad for people. Our vending machine like, here does it. Oh my God. It's like, <laughs> well, so does $5. Ah, I'll just tap it. I don't have to fish yeah. out. Five. Oh my God. Ours even charges you like 10 cents more if you use a card. Or... Oh, jeez. But so with the currency thing, the, the reason I think, so merchants were behind that. The cell carriers had their soft card thing. They were trying to make happen. Uh, but currency is ridiculous because you have to link your bank account to it and go through all these steps. I'm like, I'm not giving a merchant after Target and Michaels and all this. Am I going to give a, I mean, no offense, giant multinational corporations, but am I going to give you my bank account information? In that case, I want the credit card company as my firewall between, you know, and I want all the consumer protections afforded to me by the law. I don't want to give up that information. Yeah. That's why I'm willing to, you know, play with snakes by using credit cards in the first place. It's because you like, I get something back I think those merchants, they just want to like cut the credit cards out yeah. and say like we'll be your bank like don't worry about it and yeah so then they won't have to pay the credit card transactions fees if you're not using a credit card so but yeah it's not it's it looks really clunky like you open it up there's a pin and then there's a QR code that comes up that they have to scan off your screen and it just kind of looks like a mess and then um, right after they announced they announced it. Um, their database was hacked. Like not a database. <laughs> it was of, their contact? Yeah, it was, yeah, like, it was just like their, you know, their their contact list of the people that were in the beta or their customers, you know, their oh, early customers Lordy. or something got hacked. And they're like, hey, yeah, you guys are an awesome company that cares a lot about security. Good job. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if that one's gonna work, but um, but yeah, Google Wallet's it's it's pretty good. It's kind of like a, Apple Pay. So I'm hoping that if you know more Google Wallet, then the the more retailers will get on board. So. I guess we'll see. It'd be good. I, you know, I kind of love the, I got to say like Apple Pay is a little bit of magic. Like it takes a not terribly irritating transaction, but not one that's great. And it's like, it's so fast. It's confusing. I actually, the first couple of times I used it, I was like, did something happen? And the clerk's like, I don't know. Like, oh, there's the receipt coming out. Yep. You're good. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to walk away now. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. I've had to do it twice at Walgreens a couple of times because they're just like, oh, I wasn't ready. Like you're you're done. And I'm like still scanning your, your two items. They're trying to capture my information, but they give me points. I'm all about the points. I'm like a point player there for the. <laughs> I go to the one across the street. Uh, but let me tell you about something else that's inside of things. Okay. This is my great transition. <laughs> uh, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor of the Macworld podcast. It's Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. They've designed it around the way that we actually want to work, which is a crazy idea, I know. Uh, It's a cloud platform, so you don't have to install software on your network. It can help you do your best work. You can share files, you can use uh, blogs, you can update the blog. It'll help you coordinate calendars and manage projects. It's easy to use, it's easy to configure, it's designed for non-technical users. You don't need a system administrator, network administrator, database administrator to work on it. It's designed so that anybody in an organization can, can get it up and running. And that's the whole point when you outsource these things to the cloud. They've built Igloo with responsive design. So anything you can do at your desk, you can also do on your phone, whatever size your phone, because the 
software resizes. It's excellent. You don't have to have a special uh, thing with you. You can just make it work wherever you go. And uh, whether you're at a large enterprise and you're stuck using SharePoint, or you're a fast-growing business that's overwhelmed by the number of apps you have to use, you can create an internet that matches your brand's look and feel. It simplifies how you work, and it's accessible wherever you go, on your phone. So give them a try. You can sign up and try for free at igloosoftware.com slash Macworld. That's igloosoftware.com slash Macworld. And thanks to Igloo for sponsoring this week's Macworld podcast. Okay, this is kind of a cool story. This happened a couple weeks ago. Tim Cook spoke at the Goldman Sachs Internet and Technology Conference, and he announced that Apple was going to be building a massive solar farm here in Northern California, down in Monterey County. It's so beautiful down there. Um, it's going to cover 1,300 acres. It's going to provide enough energy to power 15,000 homes, but it's actually going to be used to power Apple's whole operations in California, a data center, all the retail stores, all the offices. Um, they're building it with first solar. So I guess the idea is that they're just kind of locking in their energy costs under for the next like 25 years. So it's probably smart for the business, but um, you know a little bit about solar power and if it's um, sufficient to power data centers, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting transition point we're at, I think. And, you know, I think this goes down to, like, the smallest things that we work with, like the CPUs in computers and phones. There was this trend for a long time that things got bigger and burned more power, and that was unsustainable, right? Because between the battery life of mobiles and the power consumption needed, even for, like, a home server. Like, I remember when I was pulling in hundreds of watts for some kind of system I had with my CRT monitors and, and whatever. And um, the trend of the last, gosh, it's probably been a decade now is, uh, or maybe even longer, is uh, CPUs that are increasingly more efficient. The multi-core CPU was part of that because putting multiple cores in a single package reduced the inter-chip communication and power load and so forth. So there's all of these tendencies at the like that micro level to try to reduce power consumption so that you can have um I, mean, I remember going to visit google their first data center i was taken you know secretly in there when they were a tiny tiny company in like 2001 in san jose uh and uh they had these racks they were testing all this different equipment stuff was out of the boxes just like motherboards stuck on racks and thermometers and whatever because they didn't know how densely they could pack this stuff. No one was building a million servers then. Now we have millions and millions of servers. You know, Amazon probably has millions for its uh, its EC2 uh, like time rental uh, <laughs> computer sharing uh, virtual machine operation now alone, and uh, so. All this power has to come from somewhere. And so even as the industries try to be more efficient on how power is used, they still have the issue of building massive <laughs> data centers and, and trying to fund them. So uh, I had took a trip a few years ago after Facebook opened its data center in Prineville, Oregon, the beautiful high sh uh, chaparral, I think it's called, the high desert of Oregon, which is a gorgeous country. And out in the middle of rodeo territory, they built this data center and everyone's like, what, you know, isn't it hot in the desert? What are you doing there? But they're thousands of feet up. It's high desert. And, uh, the data center was built without any air conditioning. It uses swamp cooling where they can blow water across vents and the whole, they created these new kinds of servers or new generations of them where they're open from front to back. They've aligned the flow of, of heat 
all of this, and it was wonderful. And now I believe, I don't know if it's ever been confirmed, but they were trying to attract other companies to sort of come up there and build out um, in the high desert. And now you see in Apple, uh, the what's not confirmed is I believe Apple has a data center there now, although I'm not sure they ever confirmed it, but it's pretty widely understood. And other companies have located because uh, what Facebook needed to do is they needed to work with the local utility to bring in megawatts of additional power. And uh, that and the, their utility at the time had a heavy coal component. So Facebook was investing in a little bit of solar at their location, but also um, encouraging the company and helping subsidize utility to buy more wind power as part of its mix. And now you're seeing, you know, as a few years ago, and they, they weren't the first to try to push that, but we're now scaling to a point where you might be able to have, it's hard to imagine data centers that would be self-sufficient from the power grid, but you can imagine this offset like Apple is doing because you have to build solar at a huge scale. It doesn't work when you build, you know, Facebook put enough solar cells in its Prineville uh, location to power its office operations, but not its data center. And that's great. That offsets a little bit of use. But when you start building, you know, these thousands of acres or hundreds or thousands of acres of solar, then you're getting to the scale where, A, you've proved it. So Apple doing it, if it can make a viable thing with this partnership, and it plays out even over a couple of years, they start to make it work then other companies will be like, you know, this may be a great investment. We know oil, even though it's dropped in price now, we know energy is going to get more expensive. We know carbon offsets are probably coming. All these additional issues that will affect the cost of burning fossil fuel and non-renewable resources. So this may encourage more companies to get in there, even as it, it offers an advantage to Apple uh, like financially, and it gives them more of a green image, too. Right. Like someone had asked Tim Cook at an earlier shareholders meeting, they were like, what about all these environmental initiatives you do? Like, do these have a good ROI for me, the shareholder? And Tim Cook just totally snapped at him and was just like, look, if every, if you want all of our decisions to you know, be based solely on ROI, then you're in the wrong stock and you should probably get out of the stock. But when he was talking to Goldman Sachs, I mean, he said like right out, he's like, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And I think it is. It really aligns with Apple's values. Um, but he said it's also you're also interested to know that it's financially good to do it. Like we're going to expect significant savings from this um, over the next couple of decades. So I think this is, you know, Tim making smart business decisions, which is how he got where he is now. But it's also, yeah, it's it's good for the environment if they can use solar power instead of, um, you know, coal power. And they might be obliged to in the future. And that's that's the thing is you get out ahead of it. You look at oil companies and you think, why didn't oil companies uh, start putting some of their massive, massive profits into solar long before they did? I mean, some of them are. There are many companies now that are starting to diversify into renewable energy and wind especially and, and uh, you know water and all these uh, water power and so forth. But you think, look, if you can get out in front of it and Apple has the money, Apple literally has no better place to invest its money than its own stock, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a weird place to be. So investing essentially in energy futures by building it and using its own money is, and then they control it as well that way. It's probably a good idea because, you know, oil is not, uh, or gas prices are not at a, I don't think they're at a historic inflation adjusted low, but they're not too far off from that. But we know they'll go back up. There's an inevitable cycle. And so yep. if oil costs twice as much, then suddenly Apple reaps huge savings, uh, and, it, and it will. You look at like the airline industry um, and Boeing and all these companies, they're investing heavily now in like algae-based fuel alternatives. You have all these companies, you know, cellulosic uh, 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 ethanol, right? That's a big thing that's been worked on. It's unclear still whether it's going to pan out. Like all these alternatives. So it's not really weird for a company like Apple to say, 
right now in 2015 or 2014 when they said it, it's not weird in 2014, 2015 for them to say, like all these other big industries, we need to secure our future. Our industry happens to be running power through computers to power a cloud mostly um, and have retail stores that have bright lighting. Like that's, that's kind of what our industry is. We're not making heavy machinery and we're not flying planes, but all of these different industries are all trying to secure a renewable, affordable, uh, lower carbon footprint future for their needs because they don't want these, uh, you know, hundred dollar, hundred fifty dollar barrel oil prices to kill them. And, and they will, you know, they almost destroyed the oil, uh, the, the uh, airplane industry again the airline industry rather and the airplane manufacturing industry because of it. So I think Apple is doing an incredible thing to hedge its bets by spending a really tiny amount of money that it's got stored away and can't do anything better with. Yep. Hey, Susie, I know, I know something about you. Yes. I, I know that you like emoji. And I, <laughs> I, I hear there's good news coming for emoji lovers. Yeah, there's new emoji in the in the beta of uh, Mac OS 10. It's a 10.10.3, I think, is in beta right now for Yosemite, and it's got the new emoji. So I was reading, <laughs> I was reading this yesterday. I knew the new emoji were coming with iOS 8.3, so I was sort of just under the impression that okay, when that finally drops to users, then I'll I'll get all these new ones. They're, they're, there's going to be more diverse emoji if you don't want your little people to all look like Lego men. Um, you'll be happy about that. Um, but yeah, I actually felt really stupid and really excited at the same time because I didn't even realize they were in Yosemite to begin with. I don't know. I never used that special characters keyboard because... I just didn't. And it's so much easier to find on iOS. I have so much stuff up in my menu bar that I think I was like, oh, this doesn't need to be in my menu bar. I'm never switching from American English to UK English. Like, why would I want to switch keyboards? It's because the emoji are in there. I didn't know. So if you were like me and you also didn't know, um, you can use the emoji that are in there now. And then, um, of course, new ones are coming. It's really easy. You go into system preferences keyboard and there's a little box to check that says show keyboard picker in the menu bar. And then you put it up there and it shows up like right next to your little time and date clock. And you click that and you bring up uh, the special character picker and then there's all the emoji and you can make the window nice and big. You can see them all. You can put them in a favorites list. Um, you told me that that favorites list will pop up in supported apps, which are, you know, all the Apple apps. Um, and that comes up when you hit command control space. It's a very intuitive shortcut. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't know. So but you yeah. can also get extra punctuation that way too. It's excellent. I sometimes right. need, I need an interrobang sometimes, you know, question mark, exclamation point in one character. And the only way to easily get it is to, you know, command control space. And then I can find that interrobang and put it in there. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, I mean, I knew the, the keyboard shortcuts for a few, like, you know, I'll use like the pound sign or, or something like that. I'll, I'll, I have keyboard shortcuts for some for putting an accent over, you know, an E. I know that. But um, yeah, so that that really opens it up. So I'm going to just put emoji in everything I write from here on out. So get ready. Well, I, I wonder I if the CMS supports putting them in headlines. Oh, I see. I would suggest <laughs> that Macworld should probably just to get with the times, you know, and to, mm-hmm. be, to appeal more to young people. Um, you know, podcasts are one way to appeal to young people because young people listen to podcasts. And uh, the other is course is to um, publish articles entirely in emoji. Yeah, uh, we could do transcripts. Know. The next time Tim Cook speaks somewhere, we'll just do an emoji transcript. <laughs> Happy face, money. Yeah. Ooh, money. <laughs> money, 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 money. <laughs> money, money, money. Thumbs up, white guy. Little pill, um, unicorn, money. Yeah. I 
should point out, you know, I got upset at Saturday Night Live, which uh, no one ever gets upset because no one apparently watches it anymore. But I got upset at SNL the other day because they did what I thought was an inaccurate bit about uh, Emoji and Unicode, suggesting that there was a company that released a you know, nonprofit consortium. And I'm like, Unicode suffers from the problem that it was invented in Japan for a really particular purpose, and it took off. So yeah. the fact is, it's like when people say it's only Caucasian people in there, I'm like, I'm still baffled by that because it was designed in Japan. It's only Japanese but the people. representations are all of Caucasian people. I'm like, there's already a representation problem, like from practically from its invention. So now there will be a better representation, which I think is awesome. We're and getting a taco. Will... We're getting a taco. That's good. Well, yeah. we're going to get pizza. <clears throat> Um, you yeah, can, the food use, selection is is a little sad right now. So I used to use octopus for taco because it's it's uh, octopus is taco in Japanese because that's how I think. Uh, that's how my <laughs> terrible mind terrible mind works. That's amazing. Uh, uh, well, so people can look forward to that in ten dot ten dot three, and when that's out, we will be talking about all the gory details. Um, in the meantime, one of my new duties is to be writing. Uh, the Mac 911 column. And so I hope that listeners would consider uh, sending their questions uh, in so that we have more topics to choose from. I know uh, nobody has anything, uh, any questions about Yosemite, of course. It works perfectly in every way, and everyone <laughs> understands everything about it. But, um, Susie, what's the email? I don't, ha- uh, this is my memory already. What's the email for Mac911? The Mac911 email is Mac911 at <laughs> macworld.com. That's terrible. I don't even know how I can remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of things to remember. Mac nine one. Yeah, that's uh, Mac nine one one is the email for Mac nine one one. That's I like that. So we'll be back uh, next week, uh, and this has been episode four forty five for February twenty fifth, two thousand fifteen. Susie, it's been great talking to you this first time. Yes, thanks for being here, and I can't wait to talk again next week. Right on. All right, talk to you all soon, folks. And thanks again to this week's sponsor, Igloo. You can find them at igloosoftware.com slash Macworld, where you can sign up now and try it for free. <laughs>